there's a there's a problem uh, in our culture that's not new to our culture, but I think there's a uh, it's getting maybe more complicated as as a way to say it. And uh, the problem I'm talking about is we have this we've always had this issue. Whatever culture, whatever year it is, you could go back thousands of years. It's always been the case that that we have disagreements on how we should do something or we'd say, well, this is kind of the issue. And then there'll be a whole smattering of opinions on what that looks like. And that's always been the case. And that's certainly the case today. But there's this new thing that's kind of happening in our culture that's a little different. And it's that we now kind of have uh, alternative facts. It's not that we just disagree on the issue. We might say, well, this is the issue and you see it this way and I see it this way. But we now often have our own facts that we bring to it. And part of it's the culture we live in. Uh, constantly, you can, you can turn on the TV, you can see different things, you can kind of hear what you want to hear. We can easily get kind of uh, lost in echo chambers, if you will, just hearing certain things that we like. And so it's very easy for that to start to be the case. And it starts to be hard to kind of see the truth underneath that. But I think the, the thing that concerns me is that has really, uh, the larger culture has kind of crept into the church and the way that we operate and even the way that we come to God's word. And the same thing starts to happen. We start to have these kind of alternate facts. Um, and it's not a new idea. There's always been heresy. There's always been those that are out of step with the orthodox teaching of the Bible and what it says. But now I think it's getting a little more nuanced and there's a kind of a new strain that makes it more and more difficult. And so uh, as I was thinking about it, there's a whole host of reasons, but there's a few that I was thinking about that kind of come together, that are working together in concert that kind of bring us to this. Uh, the first that's universal through all of history, no matter what culture you're looking at, is that we're sinful people. Every single one of us has blind spots. Every single one of us is selfish in different ways. We're prideful. It's easy for us to kind of uh, uh, dig our heels in and I want to be right and they're wrong and that kind of stuff. And all of us fall into that because of our sinfulness of our heart. Uh, the Bible talks about the deceitfulness of our heart. It's easy for us to be deceived because of our sin nature and because we're all born into that. And so that's part of it. Uh, but right now there's something unique and, and this kind of ebbs and flows as well, but it's unique in our culture right now. We have a rampant biblical illiteracy, particularly in America today. Uh, you can, I can show you all sorts of studies and go through that, but right now we're kind of in one of those valleys, right? We, we don't know what the Bible says in a whole lot of ways. Uh, sadly, even some of the statistics, if you look at it, is that most people feel like they know the Bible pretty well, but then when you actually ask them questions about it, what it reveals is they don't know the Bible very well and the literacy is really high, but there's kind of an ignorance to that. And so that's part of it. But then there's a third thing that's happening today in our culture that's, that's unique to where we are. And it's unique in all of human history. And it's that each one of us walk around with one of these in our pocket. Right? We all have a supercomputer in our pocket at, at all times. And up until 30 years ago, 20 years ago, that wasn't the case. But now we do. And so when you take that we have sinfulness of our own hearts, and then you take our biblical illiteracy and the things that start to kind of take the place of our biblical illiteracy, what ends up happening is we can reach in our pocket at any time and get confirmation bias. I can pull this thing out at any time I want. I can take my phone out and ask it to tell me anything that I want to believe. And I will get a whole host of things that will agree with me. It doesn't matter if it's biblical or not. And you'll get people that will say, well, no, no, actually the Bible does say that. And you'll get articles and you'll get all sorts of things. And it becomes really difficult because of that, because of this uniqueness that we have now. You can be connected with anything that you want to believe at any time. 
And you go, well, I have scholars and I have people that tell me and these things and you can find these sources. And so it becomes really difficult. What is true? And how do we hold to what God's word says? And, and what is it that God's word actually says? And all of those things kind of work in confluence together and they cause all sorts of issues. And so what I see today in a lot of ways is our sin plus biblical literacy plus the culture kind of filling in the cracks where we don't have what the Bible says or we're ignorant of what it says. And then this confirmation bias and suddenly we have a whole lot of things that we're embracing that the Bible actually doesn't say. Suddenly we have a God that looks just like us. The things that I want to believe and the things that I feel and the things that I like. And I can just find other people that will agree with me. Go, Yeah, yeah, we're all right. And it's so hard when we start to slip into that. But what I want us to think about today, and I start there, is because we're going to look at Jesus today. We're going back to our series of kind of walking through the life of Jesus. If you haven't been with us, uh, we did this almost all of last year. And so what I was saying over and over last year as we've been going through this, that Jesus's earthly ministry is, is approximately three years. And as you look through the Gospels, and when I say the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first four books of the New Testament, they tell of Jesus's life. But what we've been doing is we've been walking through chronologically. Instead of just looking at Matthew or Mark or Luke or John, we've been looking at all four of them, kind of putting them together chronologically and following kind of the arc of Jesus's ministry. And so last year, we made it all the way through the second year. If you're with us, we stopped right about the beginning of November, and now we're picking up and we're going to finish in this year, 2023, we're going to spend most of our time in the Gospels looking at the third year of Jesus's ministry. And as we look at it today, and what we're going to see today here in Matthew chapter 15, is these religious leaders come to Jesus, and they begin to kind of push in on him, and they're, they're questioning him, and they're, they're, uh, they're coming after him in a lot of ways. And one of the things around this that we're going to look at today addresses what's happening in our culture in a lot of ways. The way we can get off on what the Bible actually says and how we can hold the different things. And I think what we're going to see in this passage is Jesus gives us some really helpful ways in which to see what is true. And how do we hold the truth? And what does that look like? And so you can imagine, if you think about it, if you go back to what we talked about the very, very first week's um, go back to the beginning of last year. Uh, I don't expect you to remember that. and <laughs> Some of you aren't here. But when we first started this series, we looked at John chapter 1. And in John 1, 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And it's talking about Jesus, right? And then in verse 14 of John chapter 1, it says, And then the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the word that is used there in our English translation for word, right? The word for word is logos and logos means divine truth that jesus is the divine truth he is the exact imprint of the very nature of god and when he steps into creation and he dwells among us we now see the reality of how things are the ultimate reality right in front of us and so you can imagine as jesus steps in and he is the divine truth and he is showing us exactly what god is like and who God is, because he himself is God in the flesh. That upsets a lot of people, particularly the very religious that think their interpretation is right. And we have the rules and we have the right thing. And Jesus goes, no. And suddenly there's a huge problem. And so by the time we get to the end of the third year or the beginning of the third year of Jesus's ministry, the heading over that is the year of opposition. And I said at the beginning that the first year of Jesus ministry is really the year of obscurity or preparation. People don't really know who he is yet. Year two, people get really excited. 
the year of popularity and everybody's gung-ho. This is the Messiah. He's going to overthrow the government. They're all ready to go. But then we get to the year three and he starts to clarify why he's here. He starts to talk about how he's going to die. He starts to say all these things and it discombobulates pretty much everybody around him. And the religious leaders start to attack. And so that's where we are this morning in Matthew chapter 15. And as we look at this, um, I want us just to think about that framework of how we remain faithful to God's word. And I think what we're going to see here is one, we're going to see uh, a couple of errors that the religious leaders are coming at Jesus with. And those couple of errors are really important for us to consider because we can fall into the same things. The second thing I want you to see is how Jesus addresses those. He's going to give us a couple things that are really helpful to hold us to the truth. But then lastly, there's a key here that unlocks all of this. Right? We can, we can see the errors. We can see what Jesus says. But if we miss the key that unlocks all of us, we can still end up in error. Right? And so the problems, his answers, and then the key that unlocks all of it. So let's start with the errors that leads to missing this and what's happening here. And so as we get to John, or, uh, Matthew chapter 15, we're in about A.D. 29, 9, 10, maybe 11 months before the crucifixion. Right. Late spring, early summer of the year before that Jesus will be crucified the next spring. Just so you're aware where we are. Um, we also have Jesus is up in the area of Galilee. I, I said this multiple times last year when we were going through this. If you ever look at a map of the Holy Land in Jerusalem and you've got the Sea of Galilee up here, the Dead Sea down here. There's always that little map that's in your Bible. Up north is where the Galilee is, the area of Galilee, where Jesus is at the time. Jerusalem's about 45 miles south. I kept making this uh, analogy last year. It's like being in Dahlonega to Atlanta, right? Sea of Galilee's up by Dahlonega. Atlanta's down where Jerusalem is, right? And so Jesus is hanging out now in Galilee. That's where he's doing his ministry. And John chapter 7 even tells us partly why. It says, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him, right? Year of opposition is in full swing now. They are after Jesus, they're out to discredit him. They're trying to get rid of him. And that's the background of what we get here in Matthew chapter 15. So with that said, look at what it says in verses 1 and 2 of Matthew chapter 15. Then the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. Right? And so there's an important background here that you need to understand that's going on. Uh, around the Old Testament, there's all kinds of laws through the years that have, that have popped up around it. Rules that the religious leaders have put in place. It's not things that are actually in the Bible. It's not actually in the Old Testament. But it's rules that they put around it to try to keep people from breaking the things that it tells you not to do in the Bible. And so all these other rules had kind of grown up around it. And one of those rules was the way in which you wash your hands, right? And that's what they're talking about to Jesus. They say, your disciples are breaking the rules about washing your hands. But if you look closely at what they say here, they say, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? Notice that they don't say, why do your disciples not do what the Bible says? Because they're not actually breaking what the Bible says or the, the, what Scripture tells us. But they're breaking the laws or the rules that the religious leaders of the day had added to it. And so they come to Jesus with this kind of attack on him and his disciples because you're not following all these rules that we've put in place. And so the first thing I want you to see is pretty obvious and pretty straightforward, but it's important for us to consider. It's easy to begin to add to the Bible. 
It's easy to begin to add rules and things. And by the way, I think the Pharisees sometimes get a bad rap with this. I think a lot of these things, the religious leaders of the day, were adding things to try to help people to be obedient. I think their, their motivations maybe started off good. And we're going to add these things on so that we don't break the things the Bible says. But what can quickly happen is you start to add things on to what Scripture says, and now you're going beyond what it says, and you're trying to control things. I think the sinfulness of our heart wants to do that. We want to go beyond what it says, and we want to add more rules because we desperately want to control things. And that's what was happening here, and they had added all these things on. And when you start to add a bunch of things beyond what God has said, very quickly you can get into error. Very quickly you can get into what we call legalism. Now, be careful when we talk about legalism. A lot of times people today throw around that term. Well, they're legalistic. Legalism is not being obedient to the things that the Bible clearly tells you. That's just obedience. And we are called to obedience. But legalism is when we add to it or we take a personal conviction that we have as we're seeking to to live out what we believe. And we've decided, well, I'm not going to do this or that, even though the Bible doesn't necessarily forbid it. And then we put it on other people. Well, you too need to do that, right? Uh, silly example, but people do that with like, well, you should wear a tie when you go to church. Maybe you should. There's nothing wrong with that. If you have a personal conviction that you want to wear a tie and a jacket when you come to worship, great. Do that. But the Bible doesn't command that. And as soon as you put that on somebody else, you've now turned into legalism. That's what's happened here. The religious leaders of the day come to Jesus and his his disciples, and they say, you need to follow what we've said and these rules that we have about washing your hands. And they're starting to add on to what Scripture says. And so it's easy for us to get caught up in a whole lot of ways. Uh, sometimes it's tradition. Sometimes it's what we grew up in or what we've heard or what people have told us. Uh, I'll give you an example from when I first started here. Uh, this March will be 14 years I started as pastor at Church of the Apostles. And it happened more at the beginning, although it still happens every once in a while. I will meet people around our community here, Dawson County, around the area, introduce myself. We'll be talking, say, well, what do you do? I'll say, well, I'm a pastor at Church of the Apostles. And I had this happen multiple times. Guys are shaking They give, that's great. That's cool. I'm, I go to this church, and I'm glad you're a preacher or something like that. But then they grab my hand, they pull me in, and they go, but are you King James only? And I go, uh, what? <laughs> like, the first time I got asked it, I just culturally, that was new to me. And I was like, well, King James, eh, there's nothing wrong with the King James. If you want to use that, that's great. And they're like, no, 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 do you use it? Because if you don't, you're wrong. And I was like, whoa, okay. Like, and I had that conversation multiple times. And what started to come out of it is I found that a lot of people have this, this understanding that the King James is the authorized version and that you have to use that and it's the best and it's older and a whole bunch of other things. But really what had come out of that is that's a tradition that certain denominations, certain places hold to and they're holding fast to it. Not making fun of the King James version. King James is a great version. It's a very uh, close to the original. It's a word for word translation. There's a lot of good things about it. But you realize the King James was done in 1611. That's <laughs> when so it was first published, 1600s. So that means for 1600 years before that, there was no King James Bible, just so we're clear. <laughs> uh, the version that we use here, we've chosen to use the ESV. And I'm not saying ESV is better than King James or whatever. This is a newer translation than the King James is. But you may not be aware 
that the ESV goes back to original manuscripts to do the translation. They go back to really, really old documents, the same old documents that the King James used. Actually, in some cases, older version, older manuscripts than even the King James used. And so then they do word for word translations. And so we are blessed in the time that we live in that there are so many good translations. And the ESV is one of them. King James is one of them. Uh, the uh, NASB is a great one, word for word, important translations. But what's happened and what was happening in these conversations I was having is people were dismissing churches because you don't hold to this very specific tradition that I hold to. And it's not what the Bible says at all. And in fact, there's some errors and some ignorance in some case that led to that and holding to that so firmly that that's not actually what the Bible says, and it's not what it tells us. But we can slip into those kind of things real easily. And we can begin to add on to things from what the Bible says. And so that's what was happening there. And that's what's happening in Jesus' day. All these things have grown up around it. And so they're missing it because they're going beyond what the Word says. But then the second thing I want you to see, look at what Jesus says as He responds to them. Verse 3. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father tells his father or his mother, what you have gained from me is given to God. He need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. And then he says, you hypocrites, right? Jesus goes pretty hard. You're going to see in the year of opposition, opposition they're going to come at Jesus with all these things, and he doesn't back down at all. He goes right back at him and he says, you're now adding some rules and in so adding your rules and in your interpretation and all these things that's grown around it, you're missing the very heart of what it actually says. And so what often happens is we can end up dismissing part of scripture because of things that have kind of grown up around it. And then we're not doing the very things that scripture tells us to do, right? So we can go too far and add all these rules that aren't there. But then we also can distort the word to the point that we're missing clear things that it tells us to do. And so there's a little background here to help make sense of this a little bit as you hear what Jesus is saying. He kind of shoots back at them and goes, hey, you're missing a big part of this with the rules that you've added. And he talks here about honoring your parents and how you're missing that. Without going too far into it, for simplicity's sake, what would happen is you could make a a vow that you were going to give a bunch of your money uh, to the church, basically, to the, to the temple for religious, set aside for God. And so if somebody came to you like your parents and they said, hey, we're in need and we're in a tight spot, and you go, well, I can't do that because I've made this vow that I'm giving my money to God. That's really what they're talking about. But the way this worked, and Jesus knew this, and this is why he's calling them out, people would make this vow and say, I'm giving this money to God, but then as soon as they needed it, they could go back and be like, you know what, actually, I'm in a tight spot, I need some of that back. I'm going to use it and they could easily get out of it. And so what he's saying is you're being a hypocrite. You're saying you're giving it to God, but yet when you need it, you'll go get it. But if somebody else asks you for it, then you're like, no, 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 it's given to God. I can't do that. And that's what was happening here. And so they were taking the rules that they had that that had grown up around the Bible and they're misusing or misapplying those so that they don't actually have to do what the Bible tells you to do. Right. Do you understand what he's saying? And so that's what's happening here that Jesus is calling out. But what I would say to you is we do the same thing in our culture all the time. We're good at doing that. We're good at finding kind of loopholes 
around uh, what the Bible clearly tells us to do. And so one of the things that happens a lot in our culture right now, I was trying to think of different examples, but one of them I would say probably the most obvious or when you really start to think about in our culture today, you talk to anybody about who Jesus is, right? Just the average person, whether they're a believer or not. And when you talk about Jesus, like, well, Jesus had some good ideas and he taught us to love each other and we're to love one another. And that's what that looks like. And so I'm cool with Jesus and that. Or then we get more into the church and we start to talk about what it means to love God and to love people. I say that all the time. The Bible's very clear on that. Love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says that's the summary of the whole of the law. And so Jesus is very much about loving others. That's a good thing. We should be loving others. But the problem that becomes is we take our biblical illiteracy that I was talking about before. Culture starts to seep into that and we redefine what it means to love others. And what happens in our culture today is loving others means affirming them in whatever they're doing. Right. That's the way we apply it today. Well, if you really love them, you're going to affirm them in the way they feel. And you're going to just go alongside and you're going to say, that's okay." But that's not what the Bible talks about is really loving others. Right. If we hold fast to what Scripture says and what it tells us, biblically, God says to truly love others, it's always going to spring from God's love and thus reflect his character. So love is always going to look like what God tells us is true. It's always going to find its its uh, genesis in that. But also when we think about loving others in the way God calls us to, that also means that we're going to call people to repentance. That we're going to tell people when they're going the wrong way. Right? That's what repentance means. You're going this way, stop and turn around and come back this way. That's really what it means. Turn from your sin. Turn from what you're doing. And so what the Bible tells us, and we actually talked about this last week, the importance of uh, community is that we're restoring one another in a spirit of gentleness and we're speaking the truth to each other and we're helping each other. Truly loving someone is not just affirming them in whatever they feel or whatever they're doing or whatever they like. It's calling us together to follow God more fully. I mean, just think about it with your children. You know, this is true. Right. You don't love your kids by letting them do whatever they want to do. Right. If I did that with with my boys when they were little, they would have stayed up all night playing video games and eating candy. Right. That would have been it. But that's not what loving them is. You go, no, you got to go to bed. (laughs) You need to do these things, speaking the truth to them and loving them and wanting their best. And so the same is true with what God tells us that we call. He calls us to obedience and faithfulness to him because that's what's best for us. He's created us for that. And so what happens is that we let our culture stand over it and we miss what it actually says because we're reinterpreting it. We're saying it in a way that it's not what the Bible says. And so that's happening here. They're misusing God's word. They're changing it by these rules that they have. And Jesus calls them out, says, you're a hypocrite. Don't do that. (laughs) That's not, not what we're called to. And so the second part here that I want us to think about, so you've got, we miss God's word because we go beyond it and we add a bunch of things, or we miss it because we kind of reinterpret and then we just leave stuff out. And so what does Jesus say here that helps us? What's the truth that stands right in the middle of this? And so look at verse three with me, what Jesus says there. He answered them, why do you break the commandments of God for the sake of your tradition? And this is pretty simple and pretty straightforward. But we need to be reminded of this over and over and over again. We always let God's word be our guide. We let God's word stand over us in all things. 
Right? We, we say here we're a, we're a church in the Reformed tradition. We're, we're from the Protestant Reformation. So broadly, if you're a Protestant church and not a Roman Catholic church, you stand in the Reformed tradition in a large way. But we stand in that tradition, and in that, if you go back and you look at what happened in the Protestant Reformation, it was because all these things had been built up around the Bible. All these traditions and all these things that were starting to take them in a way that was the opposite of what Scripture says. And so if you know anything about the Protestant Reformation, we often say it was kicked off with Martin Luther in 1517. He went and he took his 95 theses and he posted them at a church in Germany. And he had these 95 theses. And do you know what they said? I'm not going to read you the 95 theses. Although I did reread it this week. It was the first time I'd read it in a while. But you know what the very first one said? His very first point in it was, God says to truly love others springs from God's love. Or I'm sorry, I'm, I'm reading my last note. That's not the right spot. <laughs> You're going, wait a second, you just said that. Uh, his first thing he said, our Lord and Master Jesus Christ, when he said repent willed that the whole life of believers should be repentance. And so this is a big thing that Martin Luther said over and over, that the life of a believer is continual repentance. And what he meant was, and what was a big part of that came out of the Protestant Reformation, is that we should always be repenting, that we should always be reforming by what God's word says. Not what our culture says, not what we feel in the moment, not what someone told us. Right. Sometimes we hold to a, a belief very tightly because we grew up having somebody tell us. And then we read the Bible and we're like, wait a second, that's not what it says. And so what he says, we should always be reforming. We should always be repenting based on what God's word says is our authority. And the same thing that Jesus is saying here to these guys. He says, what are you doing? You have these traditions, but it's leading you to ignore the clear commands of Scripture. You let God's word stand over you always. And so it's the first thing that he tells us is pretty straightforward. I feel like it should it should be pretty uh, easy to come back to is that we let God's word alone be our authority. And that was one of the pillars of the Reformation. Christ alone, grace alone, by faith alone, God's word alone for God's glory alone. Those are the five pillars of the Reformation that came out of it. But that thing of letting God's word stand over us. And so when we have traditions and we have things that we do and we say this is the way we should do it, we should always be looking back and going, is that what God's word says? And so that's what Jesus tells them there first. Let God's word stand over all of it, that we're not adding to it and we're not subtracting from it. But then the second thing that I would say to you is look at what he says right after that beginning uh, middle of verse six. He says, for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. And then he says, you hypocrites. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. He goes pretty hard there. And he goes back to Isaiah and he says, you're being hypocrites in your heart. You're saying the right things. And you're all about rules and you're all about these things, but your heart is far from me. Then right after that, verse 10, he pulls aside kind of his disciples, right? He says, and he called the people to him, right? So he's having this discussion with the religious leaders, but then he says, hey, you guys come over here, which Jesus often does. And he starts to explain to them. But then as he's explaining, look at what he says in verses 18 to 20. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart and this defiles a person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, 
false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. And so he's right. This is all over hand washing at the beginning. And so what he's telling his disciples is he's like, whether you wash your hands or you don't wash your hands in a certain way, that doesn't affect what's going on in your heart. It might be unsanitary, but it doesn't affect the the spiritual component here. He says that's not what makes you unclean. It comes from your heart. And so what Jesus starts to say here that's so important for us to remember is yes, it's God's word alone and we let God's word stand over us and we let it be the thing that, that guides us and tells us what is true. But the second thing that he's saying that is so very important is that outward compliance without heart change is futile. He's not after behavior modification. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but as a church, we're not after behavior modification primarily. We're after heart change that will produce, that will change your life and the way you live for sure. But we're, we're, we're aiming for having a new heart that can only come through what Jesus does. And so oftentimes the debate kind of comes up like faith versus works and how do they go together? Uh, we often say, and, and for good reason, the Bible clearly says it, James 2.17, faith without works is dead. And that simply just means that you're not saved by your works, but your works are evidence of what's going on in your heart. Faith without works is dead. But you know, if you think about it, the flip side of that is true too. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but we often say faith without works is dead, but works without faith is dead. If you just do a bunch of things on the outward, right? You put a bunch of rules in place, right? That's what the Pharisees were doing. You add all these things. You have this checklist. You get up and come to church. You go do these things. You volunteer. I do all these things. That's what a good Christian does. But your heart is not in it. You're doing exactly what Jesus is saying not to do here. Exactly why he calls them hypocrites. He says, you profess me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. And he's calling us to actually embrace who he is and be overwhelmed with the glory of who God is. If you've been around our church at all for any length of time, I have this conversation pretty regularly with people. uh, I get choked up a lot. Almost every week. (laughs) I usually get to the heart of the gospel and I start to fall apart. And I have people ask me about that. Jo- Joanna gets that question sometimes where people will say, well, is he just like a blubbering mess all the time? She's like, no, he never cries. This is it. You see it. This is the only time. And it's only because when I get to the very heart of the gospel of who God is and what he's done for us in Jesus, I am pleading with you to see that Jesus really is the greatest thing there is. He's it. And he's better than anything else. And I get so worked up over that. And I start to think about the way he has saved me and what he has done for me. That it's by grace, through faith, Jesus came and did what I could never do for me, even though I don't deserve it. And he lays his life down. And I plead with you every week for this reason. I do not want to be a people who professes him with, his, with our lips. And our heart is far from Him. I want you to be overtaken with the glory of who God is. I want you to know that the God of the universe knows who you are. And He loves you. And He loves you so much that He came to do for you what you could never do for yourself. 
And that's so very important to all of this. Right? Jesus gives us very practical things here that we do. Right? You let God's word stand over it. It's not just a checklist of things you do. Your heart has to be in it. And that's what he's calling us to. And when we seek to say, well, how do we honor God in a world where truth is all up in the air and all those things and what it looks like? And the answer is, and that's the last part of this, the key that unlocks it is you have to see who Jesus is. It's not just some propositional truth. It's not just some theology that you learn. It's not just some rules, but it's seeing the God of the universe. And so last part here, as you think about that and how that gets unlocked, and I want you to see the seriousness of this and what he says here. Look at verse 12. It says the people are coming to him and he's explaining this to them. But then look, look at what his disciple says in verse 12. Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying, right? He's talking about that what you, the way you wash your hands doesn't affect your heart. That's not the key here. He says they were really offended by that. But look at what Jesus says in verse 13 and 14. Every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. And you go, what does that have to do with it? How's that the key that unlocks us? And I want you to think about what he's really saying. The Pharisees, the most religious people, the guys that walked around quoting because they had memorized the Old Testament. Oftentimes they would have memorized the first book, five books of the Bible. These guys knew it backwards and forwards. And Jesus hits on two images there. One is a plant and then one is he's talking about he's, uh, all the things that my father have not planted will be pulled up. And then the second one he talks about being blind guides. And so if you know kind of history throughout the Old Testament, the idea of the plant that's planted was Israel. God uses this this image all the way through the Old Testament. I took them and I planted them in this place. And I brought them and he talks about them as a, a, a vineyard that he's cultivated. And he uses this image over and over for his people. But then the blind guide part, the Pharisees saw themselves as guides to the blind. That people that couldn't see and didn't understand who God was, they were the guides. And what Jesus is saying here is these Pharisees that are all about these rules that are all about these things that they've added to it, that are missing the very heart of who God is, are not my people. That's really what he's saying. The most really, He's saying they're not the planted ones. They're not part of my people, right? And the Bible says that over and over. Just because you were part of Israel didn't mean you were good with God. Not all of Israel is Israel. It's a heart condition. Are you trusting in God or are you not? And he's saying they're not. He's saying they're the plant that's not been planted. And then when he says the thing about them being blind guides, he's not the, he says they're not the guide to the blind. They're the blind leading the blind. And so you go, well, what does that have to do with anything? And I want you to please, please hear this. What he's saying is the really religious people who do lots of rules and lots of things and lots of doing, and this is what it means, and they add on and they do all this stuff, and they get to be really legalistic, doesn't mean they know who Jesus is. The God of the universe is standing right in front of them and they're missing it. It's because they put their focus on all this doing and all these rules and all these things. And they've missed what the Old Testament was really about. The Old Testament was really showing you by giving you these laws that you can't do it. And that in and of yourself, you're lost. 
and that you don't just need better information, but you need a savior. You need Jesus to come and do for you what you could never, ever do for yourself. And Jesus is standing right in front of them, calling them to come. And they're going, "Ah, but you didn't wash your hands right. And when we start to get sucked into the rules, we start to make it about all those things and we miss the God of the universe right at the center. We miss all of it. And it's only when we see who Jesus is. But when we do, do you see what happens? He says, you profess me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. But when you see Jesus, do you know what happens? You're my savior and my God. The one who did for me what I could never do for myself. Yet while I was a sinner, he died for me. He has brought me into this relationship with him. And he's not only my savior, but he is Lord of my life. And I want to honor him with everything that I have and everything that that I am, because it's all due to him. And until we see that part, it's just some rules. It's all these things that's putting the focus on what you do and how well you do it versus what Jesus is and what he's done for us. Do you see how that's the key that unlocks all of it? Everything that he calls us to. That it's all about what he has done for us. And if we miss that, we miss it all. But thankfully, God is so gracious, he continues to call us into it. He continues to tell us to come to him, to lay down our doing and to follow him in all things. And when we do, it's far better than anything else. So would you pray with me? God, we thank you.